Good morning, church. My name is Ellie. Our reading today comes from Genesis 25, verses 1 through 28. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuman, Latushim, and Leumam. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Aldea. All of these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham had purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with, his, with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Bir Haleroi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsem, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jitur, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the light, years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled, he settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan, Mar Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is God's word for us today. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I love biographies, all sorts of biographies. I love reading them. I love watching them. I love them because they invite you into people's lives at a, to get a look at what's going on, how they think, what they do, what they eat, how they recreate, 
who their families are. There's so many things that are so intriguing to me. And in many cases, when I come to the end of a biography or a documentary, I'm kind of sad. I'm kind of sad that it, it's all over. I feel like I've grown up with them, and in some ways, they become a part of me. And when it's over, it's a bit of a letdown. And sometimes I feel a sense of loss. And that may be how some of us are feeling as we're coming to the end of our study about Abraham's life. But that is not the case with Abraham. In this series entitled, The Promise Only God Can Keep, it doesn't end. Because the great news about his story is that we are a part of it. And it points to a reality that never ends. We sang about it. It points to a life that is eternal. And it's been an interesting journey, hasn't it? As we've, as we've walked with this father of faith and all of the ups and downs of him seeking to be obedient to the God, at times <clears throat> failing miserably, much of which we've been able to relate to. Well, we began 13 weeks ago with God's promise to Abraham that through his seed, from his loins, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And from the very beginning, as is always the case with the God, promises of God, tension comes, and oftentimes self-imposed tension by those to whom the promises have been made. Due to the famine, if you recall, en route to the promised land, Abraham and his wife Sarah make a detour to Egypt in order to help God keep his promise alive. He fears for his life, and Abraham tells his wife, say that you're my sister. And then we witness strife between Abraham and his nephew Lot, prompting them to go their separate ways. And we saw how Lot goes to Sodom, where the people were exceedingly wicked, greatly sinning against the Lord. And yet we saw how merciful God is to have rescued Lot and his family before completely destroying the city. We learned how merciful God is to us. And time after time, the Lord consistently reiterates his promise to Abraham. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Growing weary of waiting for the promise to be fulfilled, Sarah remaining childless, Abraham suggests to God that his heir might be a distant member of his household, Eleazar. And again, God brings Abraham back to the promise. He takes him outside. He shows him what was impossible for Abraham to imagine. And he says in Genesis 15, 4, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And we read that Abraham believes in what God told him and his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. And yet Abraham can't fathom how this is going to take place. And when they can no longer bear waiting, 
Sarah suggests that Abraham sleep with her maidservant, Hagar. Hagar conceives and gives birth to Ishmael, who the Lord says is going to be a problem. Ishmael, a wild donkey of a man whose hand would be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, forevermore to be referred to not as the son of promise, but as the work of the flesh. And God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of multitude. He gives circumcision as a sign of the covenant, again reminding him that the everlasting covenant would come through his loins and Sarah's womb. And all along, in spite of his failings, what does God do? God blesses Abraham, much like he blesses us in so many ways, in spite of us. And finally... The day comes when miraculously Sarah's womb is open and 13 years after Ishmael, their work of the flesh, Isaac, the son of promise, is born. And God, testing Abraham's faith, asks Abraham to do the unthinkable, to offer his son Isaac up to the Lord as a burnt offering, to sacrifice him on the Mount of Moriah. And with knife in hand, ready to slay his beloved son, the Lord intervenes. Genesis 22, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not held, withheld your son, your only son, from me. And again, God reminds Abraham of the sworn promise. Genesis 22 by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Sarah dies. And though Isaac, the son of promise, has been born, they have yet to take possession of the land that God had promised. The land where the multitudes, all of his descendants, would be born as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And at the time, the original audience would have been listening to what we've been reading, having spent 400 years in Egyptian bondage, there would have been three to four million of them. And here they sit in the wilderness, still waiting, anticipating when the promise of entering the land would finally come. Generation after generation, they wait, hearing the accounts of Abraham and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac and now Rebekah. And last week, if you recall, we ended by reading about Isaac. And he's sitting in the evening, meditating in a field, and he lifts his eyes, and he sees a retinue of camels coming, a party with them, and Rebekah was among them. And we read that he brings her into Sarah's tent. He takes her as his wife. He loves her and is comforted after his mother's death. Which brings us 
to today. And at first it may appear by our text that all is well. But soon we find that there's great potential for things to go wrong. As I'm reading this, I'm going, okay, it's like this roller coaster. One minute you're up, then minute you're down. Oh, we're getting close. Then we're not. Oh, we're close. And then we're not. But soon we find out that things are going wrong. And as we look at the first four verses of our text, just as it seems like things are moving in the right direction, what do we read? Abraham takes another wife. Keturah, Abraham, <laughs> when is enough enough? He takes another wife. And what does she do? She adds six more sons to the mix. And here we go again. How are they going to play into the story? Moving towards the promise, more sons, more problems, which leads to the primary claim of our text this morning. And that is, no matter how things look, there will be one promised family. No matter how things look, more sons, more problems. We'll look at verse 5 of chapter 25. Abraham has a family meeting. And what does he do? He divvies up the family's inheritance. And he gave all he had, it says in verse 5, to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Things are looking up. Back on track. To Isaac, the promised son, he gives all that he has, but to the rest, including Ishmael, he gives them gifts and he sends them on their way, away from the promised son, Isaac, eastward to the east country, it says. This is good news. The donkey of a man who is going to cause problems, he's history. He's out of the picture. A sigh of relief. Again, we're back on track. Abraham dies, 175 years old, and both Isaac and Ishmael bury him with his wife, uh, uh, with Sarah, his wife. Surely all will be well. Isaac and Rebekah together, Ishmael on the other side of the country. The stage is set for the promise to be fulfilled. Smooth sailing ahead. Nope, not going to happen. With Abraham gone, we pick up with Isaac. Look, at, look with me at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. But there's a problem. In con continuation of the promise to Abraham to multiply his descendants through his seed and the seed of Isaac, the promised one, Rachel is barren. She can't get pregnant. What are they to do? Thankfully, the problem is resolved. How? Well, it says through prayer. But now bear in mind, it's 20 years of prayer. Look at verse 21. 
And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. 20 years. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And yet here's where the situation gets really intense. And the tension builds. And we're compelled to ask, what on earth is going on? There seems to be a problem with her pregnancy. Look at verse 22. The, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She prayed. Now, when I read those words, why is this happening to me? I thought of how often do we find ourselves saying those very same things. Why is this happening to me? In fact, I'm sure there are some of you asking that question at this very moment. That as soon as you heard the words of Sarah, you thought, yeah, why is this happening to me? I remember one summer... My middle son, it was a hot summer day in Colorado. Uh, my son was in second or third grade. He had just little shorts on, and he, he had his bicycle. He was riding his bike, and the neighbor boy said, uh, go down the hill really, really fast. It's a blast. So <clears throat> he did. He gets on his bike, goes up to the top of the hill. And you know what happens when you're going really fast, and you're excited pretty soon, the and then it's out of control, and he face plants in the pavement, slides across the pavement, comes to a stop, runs into the house screaming. He is just blood. His teeth are kind of hanging by a couple of roots, and he's just sitting there, and I remembered in the bathroom, I'm just trying to mend his wounds, and he's wincing and everything, and all of a sudden, in a little tearful voice, he just goes, I wish this hadn't have happened. And that's kind of the way life is. We go through things in life, we face plant, and we go, why is this happening to me? What was this struggle in the womb all about? Well, I think it's safe to say that having twins isn't an ordinary pregnancy. Certainly, there would have been some nuances. But when you look deeper into it, there's much more going on here. Because what's happening is God is orchestrating the struggle. The struggle in the womb was more intense than two babies bumping into each other while they're in the womb. The word for struggle here suggests that there was a wrestling and for you, dear sisters who have had children, imagine two, and they are fighting in the womb. There's this wrestling. It's not like, ooh, I just felt a kick. No, it's like, whoa, whoa. I mean, there is some serious wrestling that's going on in the womb. They are vying for position, if you will. And the Lord says as much. Look at verse 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, the one 
shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So here we are, another reveal. But again, unlike what we see today, I watched one the other day. It was twins. And the box is big, and then all of a sudden there's an explosion and blue confetti, poof, and everybody's, hey, and then poof, there's another one, and everybody, that's not what's going on here. Everybody's not getting all excited about what's going here. There's a struggle that's going on because God has determined that there would be these two people groups, these two nations divided, and that there are going to be problems. Again, Imagine how confusing this would be for the original audience. We're not talking about Ishmael and Isaac here. Ishmael was clearly a work of the flesh. Abraham's seed, Hagar's womb. Of course there would be problems. But what's going on here? Abraham's seed and Rebekah's womb. Why twins? Whose lineage is the promise going to come through? Whose lineage? Well, the author tells us. The older, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. And that would have made no sense. For it was always the older who took the role of the patriarch. But not so in this case. You see, what doesn't make sense to us, and what didn't make sense to them, made perfect sense to God. And the tension in our lives should serve as a reminder when we forget that God is in control. Now, God in his sovereignty in our text is choosing who will be the direct line to the fulfillment of the promise. And it's opposite of what it appears to be. God always chooses, and what he chooses is always right. I want you to think of some of the things that are going on in your life, maybe in your past, maybe in your present, and they're confusing to you because they're opposite of what you thought they would be. Well, look at verse 24. When Rebekah's days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Now, we're not talking about some Facebook picture where two newborn twins are cuddling each other. Have you ever seen that in the bassinet or whatever in there? It just, and they're just looking at each other, and then they kind of cloud up the side of the picture so that it just brings you in. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is uh, Jacob is seizing, grasping, That's what this word holding means. It is literally as if Jacob is trying to get out first. He's trying to be born first. Now, we might go, oh, come on. Hey, if God can speak through a donkey, if God can make a big fish to swallow somebody to get them to their destination, I can handle this, all right. 
because it seems that this is precisely what is happening. These two nations would be at odds for centuries to the times of Jesus and beyond. The lineage of Esau would lead to the Edomites, which would lead to the Idumeans, which would lead to the Herods, enemies of Christ and his followers. And the thing is, God is orchestrating it all. There isn't anything that is happening here that God isn't ordaining. And so it is in our own lives. Do you remember in chapter 20 when Abimelech cries out in his innocence in regards to taking Sarah under the pretense that she was Abraham's sister? And what did God say? Genesis chapter 20. I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, but it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God's sovereignty can be a point of frustration for some of us. While I've struggled with it at times, in the end, I've grown to just appreciate it and find it so liberating. It's as though the Lord allows us to participate in the unfolding drama of our lives. And we can trust that he is in absolute control and that in the midst of the tension, we have absolutely nothing to fear. And while God is directing, we are participating. And all along the way, we feel his care, his provision, and we're able to enjoy the glorious adventure of discovery, knowing that at the end of the line, for all who are in Christ, there is an eternal home with the Lord. No more tension, no more tears, no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow. If it were so, if it were not so, Jesus said, I would have told you. I want God to be in control of my life. I need God to be in control of my life. I don't do a good job when I'm in control of my life. I want him to be in control. I was praying recently, heavy-hearted, about tension, about things in life. And I came upon the living words of Jesus, verses I had read numerous times. But when we read scripture, not, not to check it off in our Bible reading plan, but when we read it to understand its context to our lives, it changes things. And I read this. Here I am worried, I'm concerned. What, what's, what is the future going to bring? What about this? What about that? And I read, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And then these were the words that just, just stirred my heart. If you abide in me, and I was abiding in him in that moment, and my words abide in you, and I was taking in his words, 
ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Dear church, in the end, God promises that all will be well. All will be well. Even when we don't know why things are happening. And as we're reading these accounts of God's sovereignty, it's important to keep in mind that we know how the story ends. They did not. And in their moment of hearing these things, they would have been left wondering how it would all play out. As they listened, verse 27, that when the boys grew up, Esau was a a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. And that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Two boys, completely different, at odds with one another. And to complicate things, mom and dad have their favorites. Have you ever had one of those situations where you think, oh, man, I know, I know dad loves my brother more than me, my sister more than me. I know mom, how come, she, how come she always gets to choose first? Whatever the case may be. We can all identify with that. Esau was a man's man, a skillful hunter, an outdoors man of the, an outdoors man of the field. But Jacob, on the other hand, he was a quiet man, the opposite who spent time dwelling in tents. And they, may, they must have thought, surely it is the stronger who will f- fulfill the promise. <clears throat> the older was always the patriarch of the family. But that's not how God works. And I believe it's the author's intent for us to understand that that's not how God works. He isn't impressed with the outward appearance He made that clear in his selection of David as king of Israel. God is always looking at the heart. It is the heart that matters to him. And I'm compelled to ask us, what does God see as he looks into our hearts this morning? Does he see worry? Does he see tension in our marriage, in our family? Does he see us doubting his promises because it isn't going the way we think it should? Church, we know what the original audience didn't know. They lived in the tension for decades. And while we live in great tension as well, we know the one who relieves that tension which is what the whole story is pointing to, a redeemer, a rescuer. The life and death of Abraham is the first chapter which leads us to the ultimate promise which God ordained all along, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. The one who would settle the perpetual source of tension, the issue of unresolvable sin once and for all. And in the same way they would have thought it would surely be Esau, the rugged outdoors man, we can be misled into thinking that our rest comes from other things rather than Jesus who came as a lamb 
that in his death and resurrection, he might become a lion, the lion of Judah, a direct descendant of Jacob. In Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise in whom we have peace in the midst of great tension. So what do we do today with what we see here as we close our study of Abraham's life? Well, in the same way God was intentional in creating the tension between the two families, the two nations in Rebekah's womb to accomplish his purpose, there is a real tension and much the same tension today between two families, between the one promised family, the family of God, and everyone else. And it's intentional on God's part to accomplish his purpose. And we all know to varying degrees that that tension is indeed mounting locally within our own families, locally and then globally. And it isn't comfortable, but it is good. It isn't comfortable, but it is, is good. Do you remember that conversation that I think it was Mrs. Beaver was having with Lucy in the Lion Witch in the wardrobe? And Lucy finally says, well, is he safe? Speaking of Aslan, the great lion. And Mrs. Beaver said, oh dear, he is not safe. But he is good. He is good. It isn't comfortable. But it is good, meant to ultimately lead us to make a decision, to make a decision as to which family do we belong to, which family do we hold to. And it is the gospel, it is the joyful message from God which points us to the head of the family. It all points us to Jesus who defined what true family is. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Right after 2 Corinthians. Chapter 3 verse 6. We mustn't ever leave the Old Testament in the, old, in the first part of the Bible and the New Testament. We've got to understand that it is one story that starts in Genesis and it flows right to Revelation. And I wanted to bring things to a close here because look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 6. Look at what Paul writes to the churches in Galatia. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, check this out, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. <laughs> what? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying that in you all the nations shall be blessed so then those who are of faith blessed along with Abraham are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. How did he preach the gospel beforehand? Because the gospel is the good news and the promise that Jesus is the promise. 
Jesus is the fulfillment. And we are living in the fulfillment of the promise. Look on the screen at Mark chapter 3. It says that Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus, the fulfillment of the promise, established one family. And Christians, look around you. We are that family. In Christ, we are God's promise fulfilled. So when tension rises, because things don't line up with our thinking, and we find ourselves asking, why is this happening to me? I want to leave you with three things. Number one, accept that tension is part of life this side of heaven. It isn't going to go away. There may be lulls in the tension, but it is part of living in a fallen world. Don't fight it. Accept it as part of God's plan, which leads to the second, pray. Just as we saw Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebecca pray. You know, sometimes we can trivialize the importance of prayer. Pray, pray. They prayed for 20 years. Sometimes we can barely get through 20 minutes. Pray. And ask yourselves, is it self-imposed tension or God-imposed tension? And recognize that the solution for either is the same, Jesus Christ. And that without him, we can do nothing. And with him, we can do all things, for he gives us strength to do so. And lastly... Take refuge in God's design for his one promised family. I, I loved uh, Pastor Danny's um, application last week, his first one, when he said, let the Lord guide you to steadfast people who love him. That is, take refuge in God's design for one promised family by developing relationship with others who can pray for you, others who can encourage you. You're in Galatians. Look at verse 28 of chapter 3. He speaks of Abraham's faith in the promise of God. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
What a marvelous family God's promised family is. And while we're ending our series in the life of Abraham, we're really just beginning because, because our next series, which I'm so excited about, will be in the book of Galatians. The family only God can create. So we've seen the promise that only God can keep. The promise pointing to Jesus, the revelation of Jesus who creates the one promised family. And now we're going to be able to bask in the truth of God's word teaching us about the family that only God can create. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that is living and active. We ask, Lord, that you would give us courage, Lord. Give us courage to accept the tension that exists in our world, in our cities, in our homes, and in our own lives. Lord, give us courage to be able to pray, asking you to reveal the source. And if it's us, Lord God, may your kindness lead us to repentance. And if it's you, O Lord, may it lead us to trusting you, to acknowledging, Lord, that without you, we can do nothing. And O Lord, we ask that you would cause us to reflect on your goodness this week, on your promises this week, leading up, Lord, to the revelation of your death and the glorious truth of your resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for times like today when we can reflect on your goodness, placing all of our trust and hope in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.